0: Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding and I'm an author and I also run the centre. Today I'm joined by a very good friend to us, Lucy Strange, who not only does she help us all um, teach creative writing on our online fantasy course she's also an author and today we're going to be talking about writing historical fantasies that blend of the fantasy genre with historical fiction so lucy why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey to being an author
1: hi hello Juliet. hello everyone lovely to be here um well um uh, I'm not really sure where to start. I start at the beginning that I've yeah. always, always been a just a lover of stories of all sorts of, all sorts of stories. Um, and when I, when I started thinking about talking to you today and talking about fantasy and uh, I, I write particularly uh, children's, children's literature um, or fantasy, magical realism, that kind of uh, um that sort of thing, but aimed at kind of nine, ten, and up, that, that sort of thing. Anyway, I started thinking about children's literature and how a lot of children's literature has a fantasy in it that we'd never even think of as describing of, as fantasy. I was thinking of, like, The Magic Faraway Tree and some of these sort of classic stories I used to read when I was little. Anyway, so um, I always loved stories, never really thought of being a writer, particularly, mainly because the, all the, the writers that I loved – uh, as a youngster, we're all uh dead. So I sort of thought, and I appreciate this makes no sense whatsoever, um, that to be a writer you had to kind of be dead and somehow exist only in the past. And, and as, a, as a career um option, I, that didn't really um appeal. Um so I just I just I just read, I just devoured books for a very, very long time. I trained as an actor, I studied in English literature at university, then trained as an actor, worked as an actor for a few years. I uh, did some singing as well and then uh, retrained as an a in- secondary school English teacher. And then and then I did that for 15 years. Um and so it's with hindsight now, now that I'm now that I'm writing full-time um professionally, I I look back on on all of those things that I did and I think actually it was always there. It was always about stories, always about a love of stories. My teaching literature, um, being an actor and um, um, being being a performer for me was was always about the loving the creativity of the rehearsal process and the dynamics between the characters and and, and the the nuances in the language and all of that sort of thing I didn't actually enjoy the performance aspect of it as much as I did the, the rehearsing um so then about 2014 I started writing 2013 2014 I started writing properly having not really written much at all apart from some really bad um poetry as a teenager which i think is it's a rite of passage for everyone yeah necessary necessary thing to do yeah it is yeah um so yes yeah, so i started writing i started writing um i did a bit of journalism i, I started writing a blog um and i w- i was living abroad at the time i was living in the middle east and i was really really homesick and i f- i think i probably on reflection started writing as a w- as a way of um, channeling a lot of these feelings that I was having a missing home, a sense of nostalgia and a sense of loss for something. Um, and I, the first, I, I started writing what actually ended up being my first, my first book, The Secret of Nightingale Wood. I entered the first few chapters in the competition and got an agent through that and then and then got my first publishing deal through that. But fantasy, I suppose, Um is something that that we often think of in terms of perhaps the more escapist uh, end of of literature, um, and so I think it's I think it's quite interesting that that when I started when I started writing, it was about escape. It was about escaping where I was physically, geographically,
0: and 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 wanting
1: to be somewhere else.
0: That's a really interesting theme. This idea of escaping, because I think there's also an element of escaping to the past. Mm-hmm. when you go and pick up a, a straight historical book um that you can spend time living back in an era that's already happened, you know <laughs> the end of the story if you're sticking to real history. So it's perhaps unfair to say that fantasy is the only escapist uh, genre, isn't it? Because I think, yeah. mind you, that you could say that making up a, a story in our contemporary world is equally your escaping your quotidian, your everyday existence. Yeah. 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 No, other, yeah. So it's it's it is funny how people say, oh, you're, you know, escape from escape into fantasy. I think we just escape into fiction. We do escape. We do, absolutely. And I think that well, I think one of the things that's true of fantasy and that's true of his
1: his historical stories as well, is that because we've got a, a bit of a remove from our from our everyday world. It allows us to actually talk about a lot of things that are very, very now and very, very relevant. But, yeah. we've, but, but we've got that that sort of you know that that veil of fantasy, or we've got that distance because of the history that that allows us to deal with things in a way that's a little perhaps just a bit more gentle or subtle um, rather than kind of hitting it head on with a,
0: with a very sort of contemporary story. So tell us a little bit about your latest books, what they're about, and what subject matters you've covered. Oh, okay, well. <clears throat>
1: It's often only when you talk about your books that you realise what they're about. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if
0: you have that. Yeah, you have to suddenly sound very um, sort of tidied <laughs> up about your thoughts, don't you? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so um my books
1: are I haven't they're not a series, they're all um they're all separate standalone stories. Um, but they do have a few things in common. Um so The Secret of Nightingale Wood was my first one that's set in 1919. Um, just after the First World War. It's very much a sort of historical story, but it's got a lot of fairy tale um, in it. Um, Our Castle by the Sea is my second book. That's my probably the most historical. It's set in the beginning of the Second World War. Um, and in this one, that there is um, a magical element of um, a, an ancient myth. Um, about these standing stones on the cliff top here, um, that our heroine, but believes in this myth, she believes it's completely true. Um, so all my stories set in the past, all of them have got that bit of magic, that bit of fantasy, kind of bubbling away beneath the surface. Um, the Ghost of Goswater is my third book. It's a sort of gothic mystery story uh, set in the Lake District at the turn of the century, the year um, eighteen ninety nine into nineteen hundred. And this one is probably my most sort of um classically influenced ones. There's a lot of Wuthering Heights and um and, and Jane Eyre and that sort of thing in there. Um so my two most recent ones, these have come out within a within a few months of each other. So it's all been all been crazy. Good crazy, but crazy here. Um so Sisters of the Lost Marsh, this came out in November. Um it's the only book I've written that is set, it is set in the past, but it's a non-specific past. It's um it's it's got a, the feeling of it just sort of being perhaps uh, uh, well, sort of a no when, but it's but it's a it's a pre-industrial, very sort of isolated, very rural community, and it's got that feeling of a, um, a little bit of a fairy tale world about it. There's a lot of um, fantasy via kind of folklore. Is that that sort of uh, feeling about Sisters of the Lost Marsh? Ancient curses and superstitions, that sort of thing. Um, I might read you a little bit of this uh, actually in a bit. And then my most recent book, The Mermaid in the Millpond, is probably my most um, straightforward combination of historical and fantasy. So we have, this is an industrial revolution story. It's a, a um, it's a, a novella, really. It's for a pub- British publisher called Barrington Stoke, who writes stories uh, specifically um, accessible for people who've got who are dyslexic uh, who, who struggle to get into books or reluctant readers that sort of thing. Um so they're I think they're really cleverly designed by the way. Not to make this a plug particularly for Barrington Stoke but I do think they're amazing. So they're all on the print on off white paper. There's um lots of illustrations um throughout them and uh the the font the the language edits everything is is really really sort of carefully put together to make sure they're really accessible <clears throat> so it's set uh in england during the industrial revolution and it's about a girl uh called bess who um escapes or thinks she's escaping from a london workhouse around about the year 1800 and um uh, has been offered um the prospect of being a, a pauper apprentice at a cotton mill in the midlands um and in uh, it is not what what she thinks it will be, and essentially she's sort of signed up to kind of a, a slavery, working in this in this cotton mill. And to to contain the the youngsters who are enslaved at the cotton mill, um, they're told this sort of terrifying story that there's a bloodthirsty mermaid that lives in the in the mill pond, and if they try to escape, she will get them. Um, and it's and it and it works as um, I suppose as as a metaphor, because it's about, it's very much about freedom. Um, And so I don't want to give too much away, but, um, but we have, we have best trapped, trapped, um, enslaved in the mill. And then we have this, uh, this mermaid character. Um, And that ambiguity at first, is it real? Is it a myth? Is it just there to terrify the children? Um, But the sense of a, a, a beautiful powerful fierce creature being 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 trapped and she and the, the idea of a mermaid trapped in a mill pond with this small um bit of water contained by the weir that she that she can't get out of um and that, freedom that,
0: sorry go on go on yeah. oh, that story um made me think of a, ch- a story which i suppose is now a historical fantasy though maybe it was contemporary at the time is the charles kingley water babies which mm. Um, if people don't know, is a very intriguing Victorian story about a chimney sweep who gets turned into a water baby. It's written by a, a from a sort of, it's a religious story. It has a lot of, sort of moral lessons. Mm. There are two very scary people under the sea. Um, well, one scary, one nice. Mrs. Do as you would be done by, and Mrs. done by as you did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the second one obviously punishes you, and the first one is all cuddly. Um I remember vividly reading a version of this with, I think it was Lucy Mabel Atwell illustrations. So, illustrations are really part of that reading experience. Were you aware of the antecedents to your story when you wrote it, or is that something you've found out since?
1: No, I think, I think having been a you know a bookworm and an and an english teacher i think all of this stuff is and it's not always conscious you're right it's not always consciously there but it's all it's all in there isn't it and it all it all kind of comes through a lot of my books have got um quite um obvious um uh, sort of intertextuality and you know and the, and the placings of of the of those well loved stories are, are are very clearly there. So in Nightingale Wood, for example, main character is a bookworm and she talks about a lot of her her favourite books and books she's reading. She's reading Little Women and and that sort of thing. And a lot of the books and the fairy tales that are part of the story are ver- are are flagged up within the story itself. But it's not always obvious. It's not always obvious to us as we're writing, is it, that the influences yes. that we have? So I didn't think particularly of the Water Babies when i was when i was uh, writing this one i did think of the there's a grim a grim one of the lesser known Grimm brothers fairy tales the nixie in the mill pond um and so I, that's something that i was aware of it's a very different sort of story but it's the, yeah. the the concept of this supernatural creature in a very um i suppose an industrial or a very um everyday sort of a place um and also that po- there's a very odd little poem. Um, this is particularly, this influenced um, uh, Sisters of the Lost Marsh, actually. Do you know, um,
0: Overheard on a Salt Marsh, that poem by Harold Monroe, with the, They have a little goblin. I, I only know it because you told us already on our writing course about this poem. So uh, it's, it's, this you introduced so me weird. to it. It's so weird. So we have a little goblin talking to a nymph and
1: begging for for her her glass beads. But the thing I love best about it is the title. It's called "Overheard on a Saltmarsh. So you just and the whole poem is just the dialogue between between the um, the goblin and the nymph. But it's overheard. So then it it, it implies obviously that the poet or the writer. Uh, uh, someone was there and they heard this and it just and then immediately it creates a whole a whole story a whole possible story surrounding that but anyway it's an example of how sometimes we're aware of our influences and they and they shape us and they shape our work but sometimes they just things just sort of seep through don't they and we
0: (laughs) we definitely know it so you can have something like a mermaid in a mill pond or a water baby and it each age, the, the metaphoric symbolic use of it is very different. So, you were talking mm. about freedom and a sort of yeah, uh, captivity and, and, and cruelty, I suppose, and in a sense, an anti industrial revolution conditions of work story. Yeah, yeah, so, the, Um, water babies did have an anti chimney sweep, uh, mm-hmm. forming the in child uh, labour, labor, yeah, um, but it also had a very strong sort of baptismal, almost death uh, metaphor running through it. Which, yeah, you
1: know, there's a lot of un- other quite, quite unpleasant stuff in it as well, I <laughs> um, think. I didn't notice that it. as
0: a child. I just kind of read it, you know. <laughs> but now I look at it and think, oh, dear, this is all a bit... <laughs> yeah.
1: Disgusting.
0: Anyway, uh, let the past be the past. Um, we can't tidy it up. <laughs> but just thinking about this issue of writing uh, historical fantasies, I would love to, absolutely love to hear you read some of your uh, work but we can have that as like story time yeah. a little bit further on. But I wanted to ask you about what you s- admire in other people's historical fantasies. I was just thinking of the ones that I've come across um, sort of were in my mind. There There's things like um, Outlander, uh, mm-hmm. which is made onto screen, and the discovery of witches, which yeah. has a uh, sort of time travel aspect to it as well. Um and then there's, yeah, I've got, to, I've got to check. I've got the right. Is it? I always get this wrong. It's Jonathan Strange.
1: Jonathan Strange and Mr. And Norell. Meryl.
0: I always get that yeah. wrong. That's um, a
1: brilliant one, isn't it? So so brilliant. Because it's a sort of a, it's a, it's a, it's a different version of the world we know, isn't it? It's um, mm. it's a, it's it's exactly
0: like the world we know, except except for the magic. And um, it's was, it's so clever. I've just read Piranesi, which is... Um, oh, that's so I
1: really want to read that.
0: Yeah. I'm, in fact, I actually, I've heard so many amazing things about it. I prefer Piranesi. Um, oh, in okay. that, For me, it was uh, is a lot shorter, which helped, because I, I, yeah, I found yeah. the long, the long read, you know, you have to really invest in a world. You, you have know, to commit, know. you do, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Piranesi, I think, is, is, is sort of a step outside time but it's in a historical place and it references historical events. So that's a very interesting use of historical fiction.
1: It's, it's interesting he's talking about time, time travel and time slips because two two of the books, I would say from sort of the realm of classic children's fantasy, historical fantasy, that have influenced me would be Moondial, Helen Cresswell. I don't know if you know if you know that. It's a, lo- Love it. a lovely um very odd. A, about a girl who uh, sort of a critical point in her life I think her mother's in a coma or something like that. she's staying with an aunt always staying with an aunt like, aunts staying yeah, with, no, I've staying used that I've used that staying with irresponsible <laughs> aunts who don't care where you go and what you get up to she's staying with an aunt and um she I think there's a, the grounds of a stately home and there's a um, a sort of a well she thinks it's a sundial but it's not a sundial it's a moondial and and the and the moon dial has the power to transport her back in time and she's there in this stately home as it was in, in its heyday and she meets the a, a child who's a servant there and that's something. Um, and that sounds another, a bit like Tom's Midnight Garden. Well I was just going to say huh? the other one the other one is Tom's Midnight Tom's Midnight Garden. And both of them have this the sense of um um I suppose that classic that classic feeling to it. And because of the time slip, it is somehow timeless as well. It could be it, the, the the modern day could be any any time and it doesn't matter where if that's the mm. 1960s or now. Um and Thomas Midnight Garden is lovely, isn't it? So that to, for people who don't know, it's about, about a boy staying, he's been quarantined, hasn't he? He's been quarantined with yeah. chickenpox or measles or some something
0: something like that. And he's staying I think in a he's flat. Sent away because his brother has it. Oh, that's it? it. I think that's yeah. it. Yeah. So Another he's staying sent away. <laughs>
1: yeah. So again, he's staying with aunt, an aunt and uncle. I think yeah, in really. a flat. Um, and it's, it's a like, house, it, bigger house that's been converted. That's right. It was a grand house that's now flats. And there's mm. a little old lady who lives in the flat upstairs, and she's quite she's a bit mysterious, isn't she? Mm. And um he can't sleep, and every night um, he and he starts. He starts creeping out into the garden, cre- creeping outside. He's and it's unclear whether it's sleepwalking or, or or if it's actually happening. And I love, I love that ambiguity. By the way, it's something I'd, I'll come back to in a minute because playing with ambiguity and and is this real? Is it happening? Is it a dream? Is it is it a story within the story? That kind of thing. I, that's something I really love playing with in my work. So we're not sure what's happening. And he goes out and and instead of that little sort of you know scrubby yard outside the back of the flats it's it's transformed into these beautiful gardens of of the of the grand house that that it once was and he meets this little girl there um and they become friends and uh and the 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 lovely lovely twist of the story at the end we find out that the that the girl you're spoiling the end but oh, but <gasps> doesn't everyone know but well shall i not say no no you're allowed to say it's I've been, been out, out for long enough when it's it's been out for a long time so the, the the little girl that he meets and becomes friends with is actually the the past self of the old lady who lives in the flat upstairs, and it's all about her childhood and, and and growing up in the house and and the the and of course the lovely ambiguity is then well who's who's the ghost here is it him is he the ghost yeah, in her past right. or is she the ghost in his present and it's and it's really yeah it's it's really magical. Um, and a brilliant, brilliant concept, isn't
0: it? It's Philippa Pearce. Philippa right? Pearce, yeah. yeah. And um, the main dial is Helen Cresswell, yeah. The the detail in that, which I love in Tom's Midnight Garden, is the the clock strikes thirteen. Yeah, yeah. Which is just a so simple idea, but that's yeah. what I remember. The clock strikes thirteen, and then the world sort of melts and becomes this other. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Very powerful. Yeah, it's lovely. So was, go on. I was going to ask you. You mentioned earlier that. Doing a historical, doing fantasy, but doing historical fantasies allows us to deal with subjects in a sort of sideways look at them. Mm. What subjects are, we've mentioned the Industrial Revolution, but uh, in the Sisters of the Lost Marsh, for example, what subjects are you dealing with there? Well, there's a there's a, there's a a strong kind of feminist theme
1: in Sisters of the Lost Marsh. So the girls um, grow up in a very, very superstitious society, a society ruled by superstition, and... <clears throat> in their village, reading and writing are seen as a sort of witchcraft. So people are very, very suspicious of you. So they have to keep it a secret that their, their Grammy has taught them to read and write. And she has a little secret library hidden away in her room in the house, in the farmhouse. And um they live with her and their father, who's a very unpleasant, embittered sort of a character, and we sort of find out a bit more about his backstory later on. But one of the superstitions in this community that they've grown up with is the curse of six daughters. Um, and it goes like this. Be sure the first girl marries well, a second in the home to dwell. A third maid can do little harm if set to work upon the farm. Four and five must both be wed, or six will bury you stone dead. <laughs> so so Willa and her and her five sisters have grown up. Laugh. Sorry? I shouldn't, Sorry?
0: I, I, I shouldn't laugh. It sounds very grim. <laughs> it's, it is grim. It's a nice it poem. <laughs> those, those adolescent poems are worth it. <laughs> oh, there you go thanks <laughs> all that all that morbid love poetry um
1: so yeah so they've grown up under the shadow of this curse and they're fa- with the father who fears and despises his own his own daughters because because of this curse which he absolutely believes in and it's about this idea of um within within this bubble of a of a a, a sort of a, a fantasy version of, of our world um uh it's about identity and cho- and for young people being able to choose who they are and and what who they want to be and what they do with themselves what they do with their lives um there's uh and and you know and, and obviously not just uh not just girls here but there is a feminist theme in there as well the idea of um girls being property of the father and to be married off um and a, a lot of uh, um I suppose yeah but the, Willow describes it as her choices have already she feels like her choices have already been chosen and you know and I think it, it depends on what where where we're talking about in the world today um in within some parts of the world within some cultures these these things are still horribly relevant but even but even for um you know the children I taught I was a teacher before um before I took full-time writing but even for those children who we would think of as growing up relatively free from these sorts of things the pressures on them are still extraordinary and pressures not just from families and, and and parents um from society and from these days in these days um social media all these sorts of things so it's about it's a it's a it's a big picture and it's it's about having the confidence to 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 find out who you are and to choose and to, to make your own choices it's kind of at the heart of that one
0: yeah I think that one of the ways of understanding our present is to look for patterns of behavior that were similar Mm. in the past and one of the ones on social media that strike me is 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 actually from Jane Austen you know when Lydia elopes uh, yes and it's like a scandal it's like one faux pas means that yes that's it she's out the family is disgraced and it reminds me of those things on social media where you do one posting that's a bit cruel, or something comes up in the past, mm. or you did one unwise gesture, yeah. or whatever it is, and that's that's it. You can't that get idea of it. being cancelled. Yeah, yeah. So we need to find an intelligent way of dealing with the fact that we are flawed human beings. We make mistakes and unwise choices. Mm. The, the hushing up for Lydia is is not yeah. very satisfactory because she ends up having to marry. Well, she. You know, you, you don't think she's going to have a very happy marriage. No. Um, but it, it seems very similar to the, what happens when someone's reputation has really been gone through the ringer. And,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they they're def- they definitely are. They're completely parallel. different
0: examples coming from different set of social understandings and, you know, yeah. but they have a very similar effect. And that's what I think history helps us see. Yeah, I think so. I was just going to actually, it made me think of... Um, what you were saying about history
1: my, my second book our castle by the sea is about <clears throat> what happened to the um enemy aliens as we called them so about eighty thousand or so people from germany and uh austria and then and, and, and italy as well who'd come to the uk as refugees to be to be safe the vast majority of them were refugees um uh at the beginning of the second world war and we locked them up in internment camps because Churchill famously said, "Collar the lot," because he, he, there was there was there was hysteria. People were terrified of spies and and, and, and all of this sort of thing. But um, there was a, an, an immense amount of um, yeah fear, anger, hatred, prejudice that that was tangled up in um, the ways in which these people were treated, um, and and that was something when I uh, when I was sort of doing my research. For this book, um, this book was uh, was very much around very much around Brexit time um, here in the UK um, when I was working on this book, and I just i i was I know mean, I was so appalled by the amount of fear and anger and I was seeing in the in the media and and that sort of thing. So it was <clears throat> talking about about the ways in which we view each other, the ways in which we. Um, we talk about people from other countries or from other cultures um, within our own families, to our children, um, in the media, in politics um, and in times of conflict as well. And how how easy it seems to be for um, for people to to become the enemy, for an entire nation of people to become the enemy, um, uh, rather than being able to sort of view. Individuals, as in as individuals, and and I was just really interested in where, where how you know how how can we find compassion here? How can we find this ability to to judge an individual as an individual and 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 not as part of this huge hated homogenous kind of mass? Um, so I was dealing dealing with some some issues that were really quite um quite powerfully felt um uh, at the time um but but yeah then through the lens of this historical story
0: so you mentioned you'd like to read us a little bit oh have you chosen a passage that <clears throat> you think um, well, you'd like us to listen to as we're um as we are very
1: um fantasy um i thought i would read to you the um the Tale of the Marsh King. That's that's in uh, Sisters of the Lost Marsh. So uh, the girl's mother died, but she was all she was able to read and write, and um, she has left her daughters um, a collection of stories that she's written, um, sort of sort of fairy tales to do with the Lost Marsh, where where um where they all live. Um, and this is the story of the Marsh King. Um. And it's a story that takes on great sort of significance for, for Willa, our main character in the story. Um, and there's, I, I was talking about ambiguity in how, how we're not sure, is the story real? Is the story kind of seeping into um, into our, our character's world? So we've got, uh, I won't give to, I'm so tempted to tell you things, but I won't. I'll just share with you the story of the Marsh King. So uh, Will is reading this story to her three younger sisters, the triplets, late one night, and she has to read it in secret, obviously, so their father doesn't hear. Just one story, I said, and you've all got to lie still as stone and close your eyes. Six bright eyes snapped shut. Beware the dangers of the marsh, my darlings, I read, tilting the book into the candlelight so I could make out Mama's faded, twisty letters. Beware the mire. Do not lose your way and never let fear be your guide. Darcy nodded very seriously, her eyes shut tight. Many winters ago, an evil sprite roamed these marshes. He lured folk out into the mire with his will-o'-the-wisp lantern. The marsh folk were afraid of him, afraid that he would use his false flame to ensnare the souls of their loved ones and to steal their livestock. The evil sprite fed upon their fear. He grew fat and gleeful. He used folks' fears to control them and the more frightened they were, the stronger he became. He built himself a strange little castle on the mire. He made himself a crown of bones and he called himself the Marsh King. There were only two people who did not fear the Marsh King, two sisters called Gloria and Githa Greenwood. They wrote the Marsh King down in a book, all the wicked things he did and all his cruel tricks too as a warning to others. The Marsh King found out about the book, and it was the first time he had ever known fear himself. He was afraid folk would hunt him down with torches and dogs, so he used his dark magic. He spread whispers that writing was witchcraft, that the Greenwood sisters were witches. He stirred up fear and suspicion until the villagers turned against the Greenwoods and burnt their farmhouse down. The book was destroyed in the blaze, and Gloria Greenwood was killed. But the Marsh King didn't stop there. He conjured curses and jinxes so that folk were too frightened to rise up against him. He whipped up superstitions, which blew like dandelion seeds all over the Lost Marsh and took root wherever they fell. Fear flourished. Folk became afraid of everything, afraid of books and cleverness, magpies and black cats, blood moons and even their own daughters. And in this way, the Marsh King ruled over people who were mere shadows of themselves, frightened and cowed, He drove them like sheep and he drove them like cattle and they did not question their own misery. Young Githa Greenwood was broken with grief after her sister's death. Folk called her the sundered soul. What's sundered, Willa? Sundered means she felt torn apart, ripped down the middle. She would sit night and day by her sister's grave up on the hill, gazing out towards the shadowy mire. Months passed. May blossomed and the corn grew tall. Hay swayed in the meadows ripe for scything. The days lengthened towards Midsummer, like a dog stretching in the afternoon sun, and the marshes shone like gold. On the night of the Midsummer moon, Githa Greenwood set out onto the mire, heading straight towards the light of a mysterious lantern that flickered there. But Githa had a lantern of her own. She took out her little tin tinderbox and struck a bright, bright flame. Then, all alone, she walked into the darkness. And she was never seen again. Oh, did the Marsh King get her? Perhaps, but listen. The Marsh King was never seen again either, and it wasn't long before his castle crumbled down into the mire. Dead then, said Dee Dee. Good, nodded Dolly. Ah, defeated, perhaps. But not dead, whispered Grammy's voice from the doorway. A magical being is not as easy to destroy as all that, especially one as cruel and cunning as the Marsh King.
0: Thank you. Oh, Imagine nice. the round of applause from those. I'm from imagining. I'm imagining. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> Thank you. So, in a, in a way, you, you're you're writing in a sitting in a position because you're using myths and legends, which is quite close to a straightforward historical fantasy, because, uh, historical novel. Because of course, our, our lives are woven in with story, uh, and people and families have stories and, and the rest of it. So, do you see? A difference between writing a sort of straightforward historical novel and a historical fantasy or do you not even think about those terms when you start writing? I, I don't think I don't think I don't really think in genre terms I think um,
1: because I mean there's so much blurring between mm. between them anyway isn't there so I suppose this this story is has got more uh, more fantasy in it through through folklore um but a lot of my stories it's more teetering on the brink of kind of a magical realism where we have that sense of it and I think this is something that history gives us actually which is one of the things I love about using a historical setting because it makes it feel really real really concrete and really real if we you know if we've got the story set within the second world war or set within the industrial revolution it gives us this context it gives us this um like a kind of a backdrop on a stage. It, it makes us feel safe. We know we know where we are with this. We know a little bit about this this time. And that, I think, makes it all the more fun when you bring in this, this element of the supernatural, this element of fantasy. Um and I think it just create it just creates that that eeriness and that and that that moment in which we, we get that um that sort of shimmering between between reality and fantasy. Um and I think it makes it all the more powerful. Actually, someone, another writer I wanted to mention particularly um, is Frances Harding. Oh, of course, writes, yeah, The Lie Tree. The yeah. Lie Tree yeah. and uh, Cuckoo Song, and these stories which have, use very, very real-feeling historical settings. And then she takes it, I would say, further into, into the fantasy world um, than I do. Um, but I never forget reading... I think Cuckoo song was the first one of hers that I read. And um, I didn't really know what to, to expect. And I was just reading it, and I had that uh, that brilliant moment when I realized it was like a genre shift, and it was just like someone kind of whipping the whipping the rug out from beneath your feet, and you just everything, and I think I you know, you know, when you get those moments in books where you yeah. actually exclaim out loud, I was just wow, what is and it, and it was amazing. And I think
0: she does that absolutely, absolutely brilliantly. Um,
1: just, I think yeah, the that, that the, um,
0: John- the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell was like mm-hmm. that. It was another book which had a sort of. You may be able to find other books beforehand, but suddenly there was other books like it that came on afterwards. It, yeah. Later, um, or, or, or remind us of things that have already existed. The, and um, night, night Circus. In- night Circus. Who's that by? Erin Morganson yes yeah between us between us we've got a Google brain I read, <laughs> I read that recently having sort of um, picked it up in an Oxfam shop I think it was on my to read list and I think I was surprised by quite how historically based it was as mm. an element of um Sort of, is it that the film about the two contending ma- magicians, the Prestige, I think it's called? Mm-hmm. The element of that, Ooh, that's good, isn't, isn't it? it? I love that, which I hadn't realized from the way it was packaged in the front cover. So, if anyone else out there hasn't got round to it, I would highly recommend it. It's a really great read, mm. very much enjoyed it. Yeah, another one I thought of was The Miniaturist, yes, um, which
1: is another book I really, really
0: enjoyed. Although, uh,
1: what I really, really wanted. I really wanted, I really wanted an answer. With, <laughs> with with one of those books where the where the supernatural element of it is just left, and you're. Do
0: you know? I I, I my, it's a bit naughty, really. But my definition between a literary novel and everything else is literary novels don't give you answers. No, I suppose. Well, I like having these open ended, slightly opaque. <laughs> yeah, no, I,
1: I'm fine. Yeah, I, I
0: kind of, I quite like to know the answer too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm just—that's a, a bit of a joke. That's not the only form of literary novel, but it does, I've just read uh, a, a historical novel by a, a gentleman called Andrew Miller called "And Now We Shall Be Entirely Free," mm. which equally ends on completely ambiguous you don't know if they die you don't know if they Mm -hmm. they um escape and it's obviously on purpose and it's patterned but yes i was thinking hmm i want to know you know yeah and i'm a you suppose you have to make up your own ending
1: yeah but i think i do think (laughs) there's a point at which i just go no that is just cowardly come on come (laughs) on you've gone too far actually Um, do you know um, Sarah Waters' Little Stranger?
0: I haven't read it, but I've read quite a lot
1: of Sarah Waters, but not that one. Well, I think I think she's fantastic and great at twists and so on. And so, and Little Stranger is um, it's a ghost story, really. It's a ghost story, and it's about um, she. There's a almost kind of plausible sort of scientific explanation for the for the ghost within within it, and it's and it's a story that ends and you. It, I think on first reading, I thought, but what, but how, but what happened? And and I, and it felt like it was all kind of, you know, just hanging open at the end. And then going back, going back to it afterwards. And I could see, like, you talked about the patterning and it's there, it's all there. All the answers are there in, in, in the story. Um, but that's a, that's a brilliantly, brilliantly written historic, historical, I suppose, historical ghost,
0: ghost story slash fantasy. The turn of the screw is a bit like that as well, isn't it? It has that element of ambiguity about the the status of the ghosts and and who yeah. where they're coming from and what yeah making it happy. making it seem like
1: logical. I think is the thing, yeah. isn't it? It, yeah. it? it makes
0: sense. And it and, and the woman in black, dark. the the more um, the yeah, uh, Susan, Hill. Uh, Susan Hill, not sorry, Susan Hill. So that's, that's perhaps that's, I will come back to ghost stories and a a future event. Because I think the whole question of what you do with the supernatural in if that sort is a fascinating um, subject, bigger than I think perhaps we've got time for now. But um, thinking about historical fantasy, and we always end where in all the fantasy worlds is the best place to be something. Um, And because you've written a story about a mermaid in a mill pond, I thought I'd ask you, Lucy, if you had the choice of going into any of these fantasy worlds to be a mermaid, where would you choose to go? Well, any own? of the fantasy worlds we've talked about today. Oh, any, any, not just the ones we talked about today, any of them. Hmm. I've got well, some I wouldn't want yep. to go to, which are far too polluted and sort of yeah,
1: <laughs> last long as a mermaid. Yeah, uh, bizarrely, the first one that sprang to mind was Narnia, but I'd be freezing, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs>
0: they do have mermaids in Narnia. Um, it's very on the ordinary, voyage of the Dawn, Well, on the voyage of the Dawn Treader, as, the, as they go further west, it becomes a bit like the Indian Ocean. It's like crystal blue water. Yeah. And Lucy looks over the side and sees the mer people down so and the water's sweet so I think that's probably okay yeah
1: okay yeah we'll go with that so the bit that's not that's not cursed with the eternal winter we'll go
0: yeah yeah it's after the yeah. spell broken uh, we yeah. never got the answers to whether or not the rest of Narnia was under you like the bits that aren't Narnia the the yeah. other bits were they under the same spell if that's all affected. I'll have to ask an expert um I'll find out I think for me I, I know the one that I wouldn't want to be in which is Netherland. Because the mermaids yeah. in that have always annoyed me, because they're they're written to be a bit jealous, and um, and there's a crocodile as well, and there's a crocodile. So uh, it seems quite a small place as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I definitely wouldn't want to be in the mill pond. That's that's for sure. So that's out. So right, I think yeah. best. I think the best place to be a mermaid for me would be to be um, in the world of. What's that Marvel Aqua? No, it's DC Aquaman. Yeah. You, you, get, you get cool, cool outfits. <laughs> uh you've got Jason Momoa swimming around. Yeah. It's actually one of the funniest films if you um if you add, start analyzing it at the right at the end of uh, Aquaman, his Nicole Kidman, his mother, sort of suddenly appears, in, after the big battle, she suddenly appears in a very posh frock, and everyone else has been slugging it up. There's, there's some there's some moments which are unintentionally funny. And Julie Andrews appears as a great sea monster in it. Amazing. This sounds fantastic. I'm going to have to watch this. It's going to be just for the comedy value as well as the vastness of the world, I think, Be a Mermaid in the World of Aquaman.
1: Yeah, okay. I was just thinking, actually, Game of Thrones-y kind of... What's the Mediterranean? Is it King's Landing? Is that the Mediterranean-y bit in Game of Thrones? I think think that's sort of... Yeah, somewhere... I mean,
0: basically, I'm just going somewhere warm... (laughs) But isn't it fairly suicidal to enter the world of Game of Thrones? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, not. It wouldn't wouldn't end well. You'd be hunted by some some ghastly people from somewhere, or dragons, or something.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Anyway, sorry, but these are fun little tangents to think about, and it's from these kind of tangents from where next ideas come from. So who knows? Who knows? I think your your Caribbean mermaid story is on the way. Thanks very much for being with us, Lucy. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone.
1: Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast. Brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide.
0: Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning To your life as a fantasy writer, or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace, starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.